0: I'm Dr. Derek Cohen, and this is The Foundation Podcast. Welcome to The Foundation Podcast. I am joined today with two co-hosts from The Chase Podcast, Andrew Brown and James Quintero. Joining us on the line, we have Matt the founder of Save Austin Now. Matt, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me.
0: So let's just jump right in. Obviously, big day on Saturday. Walk us through... What Proposition B was, how we got to this point,
1: and uh, basically wh- how it played out? Yeah, I mean, it's a big question. Um, you know, our city's been in crisis since July 1st, 2019, when the city uh, uh, camping ordinance took effect and allowed basically unregulated camping throughout our city, with very few exceptions. Um I started an online petition July 17, 2019. That took off like a rocket. And ever since then, I've been working to try to undo this insane policy that's never worked anywhere. It's ever been tried. And so, you know, we went through an effort to try to, I guess, what you might say, lobby or certainly advocate at the city hall. That really went almost nowhere because they don't listen and they don't care. And they're only really um, motivated by sort of hard left activists. Um, and so it became clear in September 2019, the only way to do undo this, this policy, which is damaging our city so much, was to uh, engage in a petition effort and to put something on the ballot. So it took us from late February 2020 to basically February of uh, of 2021, uh, a 12-month period and two petition drives to get uh, certified for the ballot and and get all the work done that we needed. And of course, over the last 10 weeks, leading up to the municipal election on May 1st, put us in a position to to, to be successful with Prop B, which reinstates the camping ban citywide, which was in effect for 23 years across our city when there was no crisis, when we were getting 93% voluntary compliance with the camping ban, according to the police department. Number two, it restores the sit lie ordinance downtown uh, to to the downtown area, the exact same coordinates, and then extends it to include the UT campus. And then third, it bans aggressive panhandling at night from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. citywide. We think all those things are important. Uh, We want the homeless to be safe and sheltered. We don't believe unregulated camping is good for the residents or the homeless. And we were excited to have a pretty decisive 58-42 victory in a city that's really only about 21 percent Republican. So you can you can do the math. We have pretty significant bipartisan support across the aisle.
2: On that bipartisanship, I'm seeing uh, the return numbers and it looks like at least half, some estimates are showing up to 75% of voters who supported Prop B were Democratic primary voters. What do you attribute that overwhelming support from a constituency that many assumed that you would not get to?
1: Yeah, and it's important to understand that um, we, we believe we got anywhere from 40 to 52% of the Democratic vote. We have not analyzed Election Day yet because the individual roster is not out yet. Um, but based on our early vote, we believe we we're probably at, at 40%. might be higher than that. When you add in independents, we were about, you know, 88% of independents supported thought B. So when you combine those two things, that's a pretty strong number Republicans. I think we're around 92%. Look, I think ultimately sort of the left wing of the city tried to kind of make everyone who, who considers himself a Democrat vote no on Prop B, and that was kind of the way you could be a quote-unquote good Democrat. Um, and I think at the end of the day, people put sort of their partisan views uh, behind their desire to have a safe neighborhood, a safe city park, a safe and major intersection, and a safe city. And I don't think it's too much to ask that those things are safe in cities or in a city where we pay pretty reasonably, unreasonably, I'd say, high taxes. So I think ultimately, people's lives drove their decision-making, not rhetoric not smears, not, you know, press releases, not tweets. Um, And in the end, um, I don't know if there's ever been an instance where a proposition is passed over the stated and public opposition of nine out of 10 council members and one mayor. I mean, we had 10 out of the 11 people that sit on the diet to oppose what we're doing, uh, some of them pretty actively and pretty aggressively. So, you know, we believe from the beginning, there was an opportunity to build a truly bipartisan and broad coalition on this issue. And the mayor and Greg Kassar, the council member who was really the Uh, The intellectual heft behind this whole thing and the driving force behind the camping ordinance initially, um, you know, have really doubled down at every instance. When the governor threatened them, you know, he kind of did the bare minimum in September of 2019. When we tried the first petition effort and they kind of really, I think, screwed us, uh, if I can say that. Uh, They said we were 900 short uh, of the 20,000, even though we turned in almost 25,000. They played games with us on the ballot language, um, which I believe cost us 8 to 9%. I really believe we had not a 58% victory, but a 20, 67% victory, because they used the word criminalized three times in one run-on sentence in the ballot language, rather than follow the, the, the specific city charter requirements that you have to take ballot language uh, if it's captioned in an ordinance. So at the end of the day, look, we, we built a broad coalition, a bipartisan coalition, a nonpartisan coalition. Our organization is founded by one Republican and one Democrat. These issues at the local level Thank you. Are not partisan. I mean, what is the Republican party's view on safe neighborhoods? What is the Democratic party's view on safe neighborhoods? I don't think either party has a view. I mean, you may have different policies you, you, you know, you support or don't support, but at the end of the day, I think people voted with their feet on this thing and we had massive turnout. I mean, we've got 91,000 votes, uh, for, for, for Probably. It was a stunning number of votes. Um, you know, when the Uber Lyft thing was voted on in 2014, when they had $9 million spent, There were a total of 87,000 votes cast. We got more votes than that seven years later with around $1.75 million spent on our side.
3: Matt, there's a a statewide version of Prop B moving through the legislature right now. I'd be curious to know if, if your eyes are on HB 1925 and how the Travis County delegation in particular has either supported or worked against that bill.
1: Yeah, no, my, more than my eyes have been on it. I mean, I've testified in front of the house and Senate committee, um, the bill in the house passed third, third reading today. Uh, I think it was eighty-eight fifty-six with six democratic members supporting, uh, the statewide camping ban, which we're obviously grateful to have six democratic votes and have such a strong, uh, overall, uh, vote, vote total. Uh, that bill goes to the Senate and I think we'll pass, uh, probably later next week. We'll see what the timeline looks like. Uh, but it's, it's, uh, looking good. Um, you know we are excited uh, that that there's such a strong uh, strong support for a statewide campaign ban. and it's, it, if anything, it's, it's a recognition that Austin has been such a disaster that legislators from other places don't want their cities to ever get as bad as Austin did. And so not only did the voters of Austin decide to overturn this insane policy after seeing what you know the, the, how it ravaged our community for almost two years, uh, but 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 also. You know, you have the, the sad fact that every single Texas House member from Travis County, uh, all of whom are Democrats, because Paul in seat, which uh, HD 47, which, which at one time was held by a Republican, is now held by a Democrat. So all the Democratic House members in Travis County, uh, quite literally, what would that be? Five days after the uh, five, sorry, five days after 58% of the city, the residents of Austin voted yes on Prop B, every single uh, House member from Travis County voted no. I mean, went against the will of their constituency. Um, so, you know, that's something they're going to have to come with in the future and explain. And, and if, you know, we'll see how they do with that. But uh, I think that's a hard case to make, uh, that, that this policy that, that, that failed in Austin, that 58% of the people voted to overturn uh, somehow needed to be continued. And that in this case, these five or, five or so members of the Texas House from Travis County know better than their own constituents who voted in a strong bipartisan way.
0: So, so let me ask you, what is next, both for Save Austin Now and, it's? A, let's be honest, its opponents, those who would be, work against those goals?
1: Yeah, so we're, we're really excited about the future. I mean, we've built, I think, the single strongest uh, grassroots organization in the history of our city. We've done it in about 18 months. Uh, 40,000 email addresses, 1,000 volunteers. Uh, on the PAC side, we raised $1.75 million from 3,000-plus donors, 73% of the donations under $200. Uh, we've collected, you know, 25,000 fissions the first time, 30,000 fissions the second time. Second time we did it in, in 50 days compared to almost 158 days the first time. So what what's next is that we believe that the, the city the city hall continues to push policies that are bad for public safety, bad for public health, and most importantly, bad for standard of living. You know, we want Austin to be a safe place to live, work, and raise a family. A great place. And it was that way at one time. I've been here since 1984. Uh, this has always been a great community to live, work, and raise a family in. And in the last two years, we've seen a really sharp uh, direction you know, going the wrong way. And that has affected affordability. It's, afford- it's affected transportation. It's affected public safety in a very profound way. Uh, and with this camping ordinance, it started to affect public health and other things, other aspects of our lives. So, you know, we have other ideas. Uh, we'll, we'll roll those out at the appropriate time and place. What I would say is uh, you have not heard the last of us. Our work is just beginning. And so for anyone out there that wants to you know, get, get to learn more about us, about the work we do, the volunteers we have, how you can get plugged in, how you can advocate for policies that are going to be better for public safety and public health and the standard of living and families and small businesses, uh, join us at SaveAustinNow.com.
2: So this question of what's next, uh, it's something that we're thinking a lot about at the foundation right now. And there have been a number of proposals that have been thrown out there on you know, how do we really address the homelessness crisis and yeah. compassionately care for uh, our neighbors in Austin who are struggling with homelessness. And, you know, looking at things like linking housing to services is something that um, we're hyper-focused on, you know, not just yeah. warehousing people away and subsidized housing, but making sure that we're addressing those underlying root causes like mental health or substance use disorders yes. Um There have been other proposals on the table, like sanctioned camping, where you have public land set aside. The governor um, actually has gotten involved in that conversation a little bit. Uh, What are your thoughts on some of the proposals out there on the table in terms of, okay, what's the next step now that we've addressed the immediate public health and safety crisis? How do we actually care for the large number of homeless that are concentrated here in Austin?
1: Yeah, it's an important question, and it's one that we've thought about. It's one we want to be engaged in. We want to be a part of the solution. We're not going to get engaged in failed models like what we've seen in Los Angeles and San Francisco and Seattle and Portland and Honolulu. I mean, they've obviously had open camping in those places. Their populations have exploded. There are severe consequences because of that. Los Angeles County has a hundred thousand homeless people. Like I don't, I don't care how clever and, and advanced and, and tailored their solutions are. I don't care how much money they put towards it. They will never mitigate and directly address. A homeless population of that size. Right. And so we're obviously not at that level. We were at 2,500 when the campaign ordinance took effect. I I estimate based on the number of different factors, we're at about 5,000 now. There was a report 10 days ago from some uh, consultants the city hired that said they believed as many as 10,000 people had at least spent one night in the last calendar year uh, unhoused. That doesn't mean you have 10,000 any one time, but that's a cumulative total for an entire calendar year. In terms of solutions, you know. First of all, we ought to learn from what works, right? And I think there are three things that work. The first is Haven for Hope. Haven for Hope is not a way to get people off of uh, you know, off of uh, homelessness and into self-sustained uh, living, but it is a way to get them into a centralized place so they can start receiving services and they can be safe. So if you look at Haven for Hope in San Antonio, which I believe was donated by the CEO of Valero or maybe Valero Corporate uh, several, 10, 12 years ago, It's a nonprofit-run, centralized, regulated campground that's combined with the camping ban in San Antonio. And because of that, they don't have a camping problem in San Antonio. Novel concept. Um, But it's not just that. It's that they have services on site. It's that they have um, electricity and toilets and showers. They have police on site, It's self-enclosed. And we're going to need, in my view, something along those lines to address the 5,000 or so people who are here because we do not have housing and shelter space and transitional housing. To put them in right now, it's going to take time to ramp that up, obviously. So that's number one. But in terms of models that work, to me, the two that get that make me the most excited, that I think are the most proven, are number one without question is Community First Village, which is managed by Mobile Loves and Fishes. I've been there three times. I was literally there today for lunch with Alan Graham. I was there two weeks ago touring it for the second time, and I was there back in September of 2019 when all this was getting started. Community First Village is a tiny home, micro-home community in southeast Austin. Uh, They have specific rules. You sign a contract, pay rent, you have to work, the laws apply to you. Uh, But they believe that homelessness is not an issue of housing or an issue of money or or resources. It's an issue of community. That homeless individuals do not have any community watching out for them. And I think if you spend any time with Alan Graham, you see his heart for this. And the time and and money and and emotional investment he's made, Uh, it becomes more and more and more compelling when you you understand uh, his perspective. Uh, they are tripling in size over the next, I want to say, two to three years, from about 500 tiny homes and micro homes uh, to something like uh, like uh, 1,500 or 1,800, I forget the exact number. I think it's 1,900, actually. Um, and that's fantastic. Uh, that's going to take significant investment. I think you told me today it's going to be around $120 million total to do all of that. Um, but I can think of almost no nonprofit that I've ever come across that is more focused, uh, more mission-driven, more efficient and more trustworthy uh, than, than than mobile loves and fishes in community first village so we need you know we need to expand that we need to do more of that the other model that you mentioned is governor Governor Abbott's uh, state campground which is known as campus Bronza I toured that last Wednesday and I was meeting with Chris Baker recently at the other ones Foundation which runs that facility uh, they are bringing in short-term shelters these basically micro shelters that either have three year or 30 year lifetime but are reasonably inexpensive about five thousand dollars for the short-term ten thousand dollars for the long-term one. Obviously, these are not apartments, right? These are small, one-room-type facilities, but they have running water, they have electricity, they're safe, you can sleep there in, 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 in quiet, and peace, uh, you can store your valuables. One of the problems homeless people have is that they don't even want to keep their things, and they're constantly worried someone's going to steal their things. Uh, they work very hard to accumulate possessions, uh, and, and given that they don't have a place to put them that's secure, it's a constant concern that they have. So... I like those two models as things we can look at and replicate. I, I, I honor and respect the work that Mobile Loves and Fishers, Community First Village, uh, and the other ones, Foundation, Flash Campus Bronze, are doing. We need to look at those models. We don't need to be focused on hotels and motels. We don't need to spend $500 million to house 3,000 people the next three years, which is what the city of Austin is proposing, which is absurd. Uh, we don't need to follow Los Angeles and San Francisco. I mean, most certainly don't need open camping that's unregulated. We need to, again, follow models that work. Uh, there's been some thoughtful study on this. I know Michelle Steve at PPF has studied this. I know Judge Glock over at the Sister Institute has studied these issues. There are a lot of other people out there who understand these issues well and who are very well versed. And, and we have to do what works, right? We can't do what doesn't work. Um, and we have to be respectful for taxpayer dollars. And up till now, Austin has shown no interest, no willingness, no openness, no seriousness. Uh, about being respectful of taxpayer dollars. And that's one of the reasons why we have called for an independent, complete and thorough audit of $161 million spent on homelessness the last three fiscal years, because we have almost nothing to show for it in terms of new homeless housing. And when they doubled from $30 million in fiscal year 2018 to $60 million in fiscal year 2019, the justification for that primarily was we want to increase our homeless housing. So why didn't they? Where'd the money go? And how are they going to triple that amount of spending over the next three years without knowing where the, the, the money went the last three years? You know, you know, in a private sector setting, you would never be able to do that. Fail at that level financially for three years and then triple your budget with with no no understanding and no transparency and no accounting for where all that money went. So we have some we have some concerns here. We have to make sure the ordinance gets enforced. We have to make sure it's defended if there's a lawsuit. But more than anything, we gotta focus on models that work. And Save Austin now, our co founders, our donors, our volunteers very much wanna be we are not anti-homeless. We're anti-camping because camping is a, is a self-destructive and community-destructive behavior that has not worked for Austin. And that's why a strong 58% of our voters, over 90,000 of them, voted the way they did.
3: Matt, let me key off of that because I, I think you're you're right. There's a very obvious human element here, but closely behind that is the taxpayer element, right? We have the city of Austin spending tens of millions uh, getting ready to get hundreds of millions from the federal government. It almost seems like there's a homeless industrial complex at work here with some sort of financial incentive to keep the problem alive. Am I, am I imagining that or is that something that you see as well?
1: No, I see it as well. And, and, and this gets into a, you know, an area that's just a little bit uncomfortable because I I don't think anyone goes into working for an organization that serves our unhoused and homeless community because they want to make, make a, you know, make a killing. Uh, But, uh, there's no question that these nonprofits are are, are, are raising more money, or are more successful today, and their executives are making more money because the size of the population has at least doubled in the last year and a half. And so, you know, you don't you – don't, in the nonprofit world, the more successful you are uh, at solving whatever the problem is that your, your mission addresses, uh, the more you put at risk your entire model. And I do think that's true, and I think we have to be very candid about ECHO uh, I think it's called Ending Community Homeless Organization. I always get one word wrong, but it's basically the city's uh, leading and, and preferred nonprofit that, that focuses on homelessness. They conduct a point-in-time study every year, which is a useful exercise. It does uh, it does help develop the, the formula funding that they get for the for you know, based on the population. It's not statistically uh, d- done in a professional way. They admit that the more volunteers they have, the more homeless they count. It's not an absolute correct number. They played games this year and refused to do a count this year because of COVID. We all know that that it could have been done safely with gloves and with face shields and with disinfectant. And in fact, I I think it's an outrage that we haven't vaccinated our homeless population. Uh, In fact, that's something that if it hasn't happened already, needs to happen immediately now that they're going to be moving from where they are to where they're going uh, between May 11th when enforcement begins and the end of the summer when it probably completes. So you're right. There is a homeless industrial complex. Uh, We have to stop pretending that there isn't. The financial motivation explains the zealotry and the lack of of just, you know, the desire to sort of deny gravity that we've seen on the far left over the last two years, where they've really just resisted uh, admitting that, that this policy was failing when it so clearly was. Uh, so I do think there's been a financial motivation there. I don't understand where how all the pieces are connected. I haven't done investigative reporting and all those things. Uh, but I do think a lot of that is there. And that is something we have to address. And that's a big part of why we need the audit. Uh, you know, in, in my experience, anyone that doesn't want to be audited generally has a reason they don't want to be audited. <laughs> and unfortunately, our voters rejected a citywide uh, audit of the city budget uh, amazingly on the ballot whenever that was six years ago, 60, 40. Uh, but I think our voters are now uh, across the city are now more educated. They're more engaged and they're starting to wake up to the reality of, of living in Austin and what, and what City Hall is really up to. And we are, we're, we're kind of overturning that rock and looking underneath it. We're seeing a lot of bugs and and a lot of worms and a lot of other things. And we're going to shine a light on those things to make sure that people understand and connect the policies that are passed at City Hall with the problems that people have in their lives in this community. For too long, there's been a disconnect uh, between those two things. And we are here to make sure that people understand what those connections are and what the consequences are of some of these policies that are coming from City Hall. Matt,
2: you mentioned funding earlier and also Michelle Steeb, our great senior fellow here at TPPF and a good friend who really is an expert with on-the-ground experience in this issue. Um, One of the big issues that she points out is these reforms that we're talking about are really hamstrung in a lot of ways by the federal government and the Housing First policy that expressly prohibits- nonprofit organizations who receive federal dollars from linking housing the homeless to requiring them to engage in services like job training or treatment for the various issues that could lead to uh, their homelessness. How does Save Austin now plan to engage in that issue, if at all? I know that y'all are focused on Austin, but are there any plans to engage at the federal level to try to Reform some of these policies coming down from DC that are really hurting our ability to serve the homeless.
1: Yeah, it's it's a great question, and obviously, as one nonprofit in the tenth or eleventh largest city in the country, I don't have an ability to dictate to Congress how things work or change federal policy or those kinds of things. Right? We have a limit to sort of you know what what we can affect, but we're very aware of these limitations and these issues, um, and we want to you know work with stakeholders wherever we can. Uh, to try to be as as effective as we can be uh, in understanding how those limitations affect uh, how these organizations can work. Um, You know, the nonprofits are succeeding and the governments are failing, right? And, And I think anyone that's looked at this with any kind of sober view can come to that conclusion. And so what we can do is we can help direct our donors, our volunteers, our platforms to support models that do work and to hold accountable people involved in models that don't work, Right. And that's, I think, something we're going to be engaged in going forward. Um, we want the city to succeed. Uh, we know there's a homeless strategy officer now uh, who appears to be a professional person. Uh, I, I did watch part of the homeless summit and was kind of shocked at how, how just fanciful and, and ridiculous much of the discussion was. Uh, and so that did not give me confidence. And I don't believe the summit that the city created that's creating their sort of homeless plan is, is one that's going to work or one that's going to be effective and certainly not one that's going to be efficient uh so we're going to watch closely and you know city hall has power in terms of budgets in terms of votes and resolutions and, and representing constituencies but we have a constituency now as well and and we're excited about leveraging that and using that number one to educate people about standard living issues but number two to make sure that people understand what decisions are being made at city hall and how it affects their daily lives so you're right you raised a great question i don't have a great answer to it we're very aware of how those policies affect Uh, the ability to be effective with solutions. And you know, we may be able to engage our our delegation at the federal level, given how bad things have become and given how much we all want to see a real solution that works.
0: Well, Matt, you've been very generous with your time, and we want to thank you for uh, sharing with us. And we look forward to hearing more from you uh, this Monday uh, at an event in our theater uh, with Councilwoman Kenzie Kelly and Kevin (coughs) Roberts. So Matt, thank you for uh, joining us.
1: Looking forward to it. Again, any of your Viewers and listeners and supporters at the great uh, nonprofit TPPF can join us at com. So grateful to, to the opportunity to with it. Take care. Thanks, Thank Matt. Matt.
0: Well, James, we just heard about the passage of Prop B. So I know this is something in your wheelhouse. So what are you watching both going on at the legislature and at City Hall?
3: Yeah, well, so to say that this issue has is captivated the attention of state and local policymakers would be an understatement. If you look at what's happening in the aftermath of the passage of Prop B, what you have are basically city council members really trying to get their arms around how to put Prop B into effect. Of course, it it takes effect May 11th. Council members are meeting today uh, to adopt a slew of different rules and regulations, and I believe even spend a little bit of money to try and right the ship when it comes to homelessness. And so the situation, at least within the uh, city of Austin's jurisdiction, is evolving in a very quick fashion. Uh, one of the things that I've kind of noticed over uh, over the last couple of days uh, are, are the fact that the left isn't taking the, this issue very well. Of course, they're protesting and throwing a tantrum in their own weird way. In fact, a tent city has even popped up at City Hall. You know, I'm not really sure what that's meant to signify or achieve, but, you know, uh, I guess kudos to them for at least being active on the issue. Uh, up at the legislature, the, uh, the lawmakers are getting ready to take up House Bill 1925 for final adoption, at least in the House today. Um, I believe that issue is is going to pass at the end of the day at the legislature. And basically what that would do is take Prop B and apply it statewide, say that you cannot camp in public spaces. Um, and, and so I, I think... I think uh, you know folks who want to see uh, what's happened in Austin not help happen elsewhere uh, are going to be very pleased at the end of the day but but really this is an evolving situation in a lot of ways. and of course, you know uh, not to make matters worse, but the federal government or perhaps to make matters worse, you know you never know with the feds uh, they're they're getting ready to dump a lot of money on both Austin and Travis County alike, several hundred million dollars. Uh, for, based on what I've read, uh, st- our local leaders are getting ready to develop a plan to apply that in a quote unquote transformational way to the homelessness problem, which means at least in my mind, they're getting ready to waste a lot of money in very creative ways. So um, again, situation is evolving on the ground, both here in Austin and at the Capitol. Look for some very big changes on the horizon.
0: Now, Andrew, you know, you and I are you know, come from adjacent subject matter fields, Uh, you know, the child welfare population and me with the criminal justice population. Sadly, the overlap between those two populations is very, very significant. Now, I don't want to speak for you, but I definitely speak for myself when I say we're not going to be able to jail our way out of this problem.
2: No, no, absolutely not.
0: So that being said, and this is one of the most animating features for me about Proposition B, is that there was never an alternative. It was set money on fire. It was back things that were more virtue signaling and uh, part of an orthodoxy versus things that have actually been shown to work. What can we actually do now that we have an enforcement mechanism with that full provision that we simply can't punish our way out of homelessness?
2: And I think that's why the question that you asked, Matt, about what's next was so important. Because prop b was just about stopping the bleeding which we had to do but the big question right now that the city council is wrestling wrestling with that the legislature is going to have to wrestle with and quite frankly that congress is going to have to wrestle with is how do we change our approach because the approach of the last several decades has not worked you know we had housing first from the federal government tell us that we we're going to solve homelessness within 10 years in that period of time, homelessness got worse. And the issue really is addressing those underlying causes. What is driving people into homelessness? And on the left, the quick fix solution that they just default go to is, well, it's just a housing problem. So let's buy up some hotels and let's buy up other property and let's just put people under a roof and say, we've solved homelessness. The problem with that is the recidivism, right? You have people that go into these homes, these hotel rooms, and they're left there. They're essentially warehoused away. You know, Prop B was focused on public camping, but the problem's the same. It's whether you're warehousing people in public vision or whether you're warehousing people in a hotel room on the side of I-35. They're still suffering. They still have the demons that are plaguing them, whether that be mental health issues, whether that be drug use issues, any number of things that are plaguing and driving the street level homelessness that we're talking about. That's what we really have to address and get our arms around is how do we approach our neighbors who are struggling with homelessness with a compassionate viewpoint that views these people with inherent and God-given dignity that need support, that need The resources to achieve a measure of self-sufficiency. That's not going to be possible in every case because in some cases you have just such severe needs that they will have to be cared for by another person or institution for their entire lives. But so many of these people have the capabilities, and you know, Alan Graham at Community First Village has proven this. So many of these folks do have the capability of living a self-sufficient life and contributing back to our society. And our goal at TPPF, and I think our goal as society in general, should be how do we unleash that potential and allow folks who are struggling in homelessness to not just survive- but to achieve a level of thriving. Um, and, you know, that's the really, really hard question that we have to answer, uh, answer right now. Um, you know, Prop B is just the beginning. You know, we've solved the crisis. Now it's about digging in and rebuilding.
0: Well, you bring up a very good point on, on that in that, you know, again, there's nothing that is more of an affront to dignity than – saying that, oh, well, here's a person with these pronounced needs, these pronounced issues. And, you know, out of sight, out of mind, we put them in a hotel room in North Austin, then we can wring our hands the and the problem solved. You know, I know the three of us, you know, interact with some uh, homeless individuals around, you know, in mm-hmm. and around the office. And one of these individuals was actually provided with one of these rooms long term, stayed there for a night, came back downtown and moved moved back in, as it were, under I-35. And this individual has a pronounced substance abuse issue. Mm -hmm. And so this, again, that even the availability of this option did not arrest that. And that's where I think we need to start having a very frank conversation about receiving federal dollars. What are we doing with our COCs? And what are we doing with our, you know, what are we allowing cities to do when it is basically embarking on a uh, – more of a social crusade that is actually sundering lives right. in my opinion. Yeah,
2: and then, you know that's where the federal government comes in because they've really hamstrung us. Those COCs that you mentioned, uh, it's continuum of care is what COC stands for. Uh, that's the receiving mm-hmm. entity for a county of federal dollars that come down to address homelessness. All of these federal dollars are tied to a policy called housing first, which means put people in housing – with no strings attached. So, the individual that you mentioned, he got his room likely from a grant that came through the federal government on Housing First. The problem was nobody required anything of him. It was, here's your room, good luck, not here's your room. And oh, by the way, we noticed that you're struggling with substance use disorder. In order to stay in this nice room that we've provided to you, we need you to go to counseling and we need you to go to treatment so that you can kick this habit and live the life that we know you're capable of living, you know, and to me, when we, you know, James mentioned this uh, leftist temper tantrum that's going on in front of city hall right now, where they have this makeshift tent city with their protest signs. And one of the protest signs says housing is a human right. They feel like that's compassionate, but to me, that's the most callous uncompassionate thing that you can possibly say, because that boils down to, We only care about you if we can put a roof over your head. A human right is the ability to live a full and fulfilling
0: life. And the requirements thereof.
2: And the requirements thereof, the responsibility that comes with that. And a truly compassionate society is a society that says, no, we don't just care about your housing. We care about you as an entire human being. And we believe that you have the capability to achieve more than just living in a room where we're going to allow you to suffer and destroy yourself with drugs.
0: Absolutely, Andrew. And I I appreciate that analysis. So James, you've obviously been a student of uh, local government for quite some time. And so when they're not up at, you know, up at the legislature lobbying for more of your tax dollars, what are they actually doing to try to solve this problem? You know, again, we talked about buying hotel rooms. We talked about, uh, you know, again, making housing available where, Again, if if the problem is just putting a roof over people's heads, we can do that on the cheap. That clearly is that that plan has not worked. What are they spending the money on here in Austin, anywhere else? I know Houston has mismanaged their homeless uh, issue as well. What are they spending the money on? What are they spending money on that could go towards this? You know, all this was, you know, was part of that reimagining the police campaign where they're saying, oh, well, we'll take some of this money and we'll buy some hotels when, Again, sacrificing public safety in order to deal something that's tangentially at best related to has nothing to do with it. So what's going on?
3: Well, I think you're correct. I am a longtime student of local public policy. And one of these days I intend to get a passing grade. Uh, until then, I'm, I'm just an observer. And <laughs> one of the things I've observed is that, you know, we don't have a really good handle on the issue itself. Uh, and, and perhaps that's intentional. Perhaps it's not. But one, one thing that I've long been a proponent of is this idea of a third party efficiency audit. We need to bring in some outside expertise to crack open the books and look at how we're spending money and why. And that's one of the reasons I was really hopeful back in 2017 when the, when the, uh, the Austin City Council was effectively forced to put up Prop K for a vote. And of course, that, you know, that audit didn't necessarily materialize. I think there were uh, a lot of misrepresentations made about the proposition itself. And also, uh, if you look at the ballot language, which the city of Austin isn't, uh, you know, isn't known for necessarily being honest and straightforward in its presentation of ballot language, you know, there were some uh, notable inconsistencies there as well, you know, such as noting that. You know, an audit might cost a couple of million dollars. Um, So, you know, but all of that aside, you know, Prop K ended up failing back in 2017. One thing that conservatives have done since then is attempt to embed this idea, this need for outside eyes in local governments uh, we've, we've tried to build that into legislation, and we've been successful on the school district front, uh, of course, with uh, the passage of HB 3 last session. Conservatives were able to successfully persuade the legislature to include that, uh, that efficiency audit concept within the confines of the bill. Uh, this session, we're pushing forward on SB 1437, which, again, would require an outside audit. Uh, before a city or a county can uh, move forward with a tax increase election. So, you know, it, it's not ex- an exact replica of Prop K from way back when, but it is very much in the same vein. And what I hope to see if and when SB 1437 ever comes to be is basically the uh, the dissemination and understanding of what's happening with our city budget. Because we have so much money running through this city, uh, if you look at the uh, the latest budget, I believe it's uh, upwards of four point two, 4300000000 uh, dollars worth of total spending. Um, that's an enormous, enormous amount of money for one city with you know maybe a million people uh, inside of it. Uh, that that's a lot of spending, and we need to figure out not only on the homeless issue. But across the spectrum, why is it that the city of Austin spends so much and how much return on investment are taxpayers actually seeing? And so once, I, once residents are actually provided with that information and have a much better understanding as to what's happening on the ground, I think we can then move from there to making some intelligent, informed decisions as to whether some of these programs and services ought to continue. Um, and, and so you know that, that's what i'm looking for moving forward is either the legislature to act or perhaps some uh some noble good-hearted citizen to revive our, uh, our the uh the failed prop k campaign from 2017 and uh, let's figure out what the city of austin is spending money on and why well yes you
0: mentioned that they didn't want to spend the millions of dollars uh or the supposed millions of dollars to conduct that audit because we all know what spendthrifts they are at uh at uh, the city of Austin. So, just really quick, guys. So, we've been talking for a while. You know, we had a guest on. I'm really glad we were able to have that conversation, uh, you know, with the four of us. But I just want to ask you, you know, here we are. It is, you know, Thursday the 6th when we're recording this. You know, the legislature is just at that frenetic pace. We're a week out from the first of the big deadlines. So, let me just ask you both, starting with Andrew, you know, the, the legislation that you're following wins, losses, opportunities for improvement with stuff that's still alive. You're talking across the board or just homelessness? Across the board.
2: Across the board. Big win, House Bill 567. This is our CPS reform package. We'll do a ton to reduce the number of kids who go into foster care, get kids out of the system more quickly know focus our efforts on strengthening families rather than separating families it is on the governor's desk as we speak and we are hopeful that he will sign this bill and complete the good work that he started back in the 85th session in reforming our child welfare system Uh, there's a number of other bills out there we talked about audits earlier Um, house bill 2374 by Representative Scott Sanford is in the Senate right now. It's an efficiency audit of DFPS and makes sure that our outcomes for kids uh, are linked to the money that we're spending and that we're spending the money in
0: the
3: right way. Incredibly novel. Incredibly novel.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you so much for that,
3: Andrew. Same question, James. Wins, my goodness, I, I can't even go through the list. There's so many. Win, uh, win, much, win. much to Andrew Chagrin, who, of course, is my uh, uh, co-director on the Government for the People campaign. Uh, I think at the end of the day, we're going to come out of this legislative session with a number of local government wins. I can tell you that the Texas Municipal League's house is on fire at this current moment. We still have about 30 days to go, so anything can happen. Uh, before we get to the end. But right now we are sitting good. That said, we do need a little bit of help. There is some opportunity there uh, with respect to Senate Bill 10, which is our effort to end the use of tax dollars going to lobbyists. And of course, every local government of every type participates in that bad behavior, cities, counties, school districts, and special districts all spend money to hire lobbyists who then go up to the Capitol to advocate for higher taxes, more spending, and bigger government. We here at the Texas Public Policy Foundation think that is the worst practice in play at the moment. Um, The bill that we're supporting, Senate Bill 10, has gotten through the full Texas Senate and is now awaiting a hearing in the House State Affairs Committee, So big opportunity there for the House State Affairs Committee to uh, move forward and uh, try and get this across the finish line. Uh, A couple of small to medium-sized wins that I'll talk about. Um, I I think that uh, us closing, I'm sorry, when I say us, I mean the legislature closing the disaster tax loophole is a good win What we saw during the interim were cities and counties in particular raising taxes above 3.5% without voter approval. In response to that bad behavior, the legislature came forward with Senate Bill 1438 that basically says you can't use COVID to hit people with excessive tax increases without their permission. Big win for taxpayers there. Uh, Another one that we're shepherding through right now is uh, HB eighteen sixty nine, which would basically wrap in non voter improved debt into the three and a half percent property tax calculation. This is another good strong uh, taxpayer measure that will help account for the the true tax burden that uh, that is levied upon us all from year to year. And so, um, lots of good things happening on the uh, on the tax front. Uh, Emergency powers reform, of course, is moving forward. We have a lot going on on the open government front. Uh, So I think at the end of the day, my friend and I are going to be looking uh, at a laundry list of different wins for the government for the people campaign. I'm just
2: saying scoreboard, though. Who was across the line first?
3: (laughs) Uh, Quantity over quality, sir. (laughs) Do you want
0: to maybe recalibrate that? (laughs) No. (laughs) No. (laughs) Okay, well, well, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us here today on the Foundation Podcast. Thanks for having me.